Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello again, my friend. Nice to see you without your mask on since we've all got our vaccine now. And welcome into another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here on the show. I'm at Mr. Clint Davis across social media if you want to follow me wherever. And uh, in just a little bit, we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, the music man here on the show. He talks about what's streaming, what's going on in music, and most often, it seems like these days, he's talking about who died recently in the music business. Uh, it, it just We've joked about it before that Andy is like the... Uh, He's like the undertaker here at the uh, Stream Police podcast because he's just constantly talking about it's like every month without fail some big music icon dies and uh, he he has to eulogize them because if, if he doesn't then you know it's kind of insulting to them and he you know he feels like it's something that needs to be done so uh, actually this month he will be eulogizing. He'll be talking about other things, too, but he will be talking about the legacy of the great DMX. And I, with him telling me that he was going to talk about DMX, it brought to mind immediately. I've always been a big music lover ever since I was a kid. But, like, when I was growing up, my parents, all they listened to was, like, contemporary country music. So it was uh, it was in the 90s. 90s country music was all I heard growing up. Like, I didn't hear any rock music from them. I didn't hear... There was maybe some... Like, my mom had, like, the Top Gun soundtrack, and she would play that sometimes. Um, and that was about as, as as close as it gets. We had a couple other... Like, I had some little compilation, you know, kind of mixtape things like Billboard, whatever, biggest charts of the year kind of things. And I would listen to those cassette tapes. But pretty much what I heard a lot of, of was just country music. So I wanted to branch out of that big time when I was, you know, getting to be around 10, 11, 12 years old, whatever. And so I started listening to, um, you know, like a lot of teenage boys started listening to a lot of metal and listened to a lot of Metallica and stuff like that. But then, but I was not a big rap music guy until I was later in high school when I really discovered rap music. But I remember specifically, like, I don't remember the first time I ever heard the Beatles. I don't remember the first time I ever heard Springsteen. I don't remember the first time I ever heard the Rolling Stones or even Jay-Z. I don't remember the first time I ever heard Beyonce. But I remember specifically the first time I ever heard DMX. And it was, my mom took me to the mall 
the the town mall, the decrepit town mall now in Middletown, but back then it was bumping. And they had, you know, one of those mall chain CD stores there. I can't remember which one it was, but they had this like feature where you could put on a set of headphones and listen to like whatever the big records were of that like month or week or I don't know how long much they updated it, but you could get like a sample of the biggest albums. And I remember putting those things on and the cover for DMX's record that opens up with what's my name was on, was in there. It was one of the big records at the time. And I pushed play on what's my name. And I remember just standing there in the store and like, listening to this song, being blown away, thinking this was like the greatest thing I'd ever heard in my life. I had never heard, I didn't know music could be that like aggressive, like at all. I didn't think it was even legal to be that aggressive when you're doing music. to me was always kind of more of a laid-back kind of thing but this was like something else entirely it was like another planet this guy was mad and he was intimidating and he was like I bought everything he was saying I thought this was a dangerous guy like who is letting this man run around among society That I will never forget that. That song was like a pivotal, that was a pivotal moment for me in realizing what music could do, where it could take you, what it could sound like. Uh, DMX, man, he just broke the mold. The guy was really one of a kind in a business uh, and in a genre that's full of copycats. Uh, there's really nobody that has sounded like DMX or even really tried because you would just sound pitiful if you tried to do what he was doing and with the the dog barking thing and the you know borderline like yelling at you his lines um and just saying just ruthless shit in his songs but what's my name is still one of those tracks that every time it comes on got to turn it up all the way i love that song so rest in peace to the great dmx certainly man that had his personal problems but uh hey don't we all come on Speaking of Andy, he told me that uh, while the Oscars were on, he texted me that he was actually enjoying the ceremony. And I did not watch it again this year. I haven't watched it the last couple of years. I'm not like protesting it or anything. I just am not that interested in the show itself anymore. I'm still interested in knowing who wins, and I still put stock in that. I still think it's an important honor. But I'm just not that interested in sitting down and watching the show for three and a half hours anymore. I don't know. I've lost my my taste for it a little bit, but I have to say I completely agreed with Nomadland winning Best Picture. I told you last month in my review of it that I thought it was tremendous. I thought um, Chloe Zhao just like was a shoe in for Best Director, and of course she ended up winning Best Director, so I was thrilled for her with that because I thought she just showed incredible chops putting that movie together because it just, there was not a false moment in the whole thing. It just was it was authentic to me all the way through. It felt documentary real. So I loved that about it. And that's actually two years in a row that I think the Academy has gotten it dead on as far as their best picture winner, because they had parasite last year. I told you that was my pick for it out of the nominees then as well. I looked back over the last 10 years of the best picture winners going back to the 2011 show. And there have been four years out of those 10 where I 
totally agreed with the pick for the Best Picture winner out of the nominations. Now, not to say that this was necessarily the best movie of the year, but of the nominations, I think they picked the best one, in my humble opinion, four out of the last ten times. So obviously it was Nomadland, Parasite. The other two, I would say, were Moonlight and Spotlight. Spotlight a little a little softer because there were some good nominations that year, but I loved Spotlight. I think I said here on this show that I thought it should be the best picture winner that year. It, it topped my list of the best movies of the year that year. Um, and I love that movie. I just think, again, they got everything right as far as what goes into being a journalist. So those are the four movies that really, I feel like they nailed it. Uh, out of the last 10, possibly I'd give them Birdman as well. That was a really good one, but that was a weak year to me, I thought, for the nominees. So there wasn't like a runaway pick for me. I did like Birdman a lot, but it was a it was a weak year. I don't think if it was a stronger year, I don't think Birdman was a, a movie that to me was great enough to stand up as a best picture winner. So that one will kind of be an asterisk to me. Um, 2012, though, you know, was when Argo won, I think Amore and Zero Dark Thirty, one of those two should have crushed, should have mopped the floor with Argo uh, any day. Argo was like easy watching, but Amore and Zero Dark Thirty, those were those were best picture caliber movies to me, if you if you had me pick one. Uh, and I would have loved to have seen Martin Scorsese win it for Hugo back in 2011 over The Artist. So those are a couple of the ones I would have picked instead of what they gave the award to, but four out of 10. So not bad if it was baseball, you know, batting 400, that gets you to the hall of fame easily. That's you're the greatest batter in history. If you're four, batting 400 all the time. So, uh, but I think with the, with the Oscars, uh, that's, that's not a bad batting average either because this is subjective. It's art. So I'm just telling you as a listener of this show, I think they nailed it this year with Nomadland. I thought that was a, just a tremendous movie. Uh, and it was the best thing I saw in the last year as far as a new movie goes. So what did you think? Did you watch the show? Did you enjoy it at all? If you did or didn't, I'd like to know your thoughts on it. Are you over the Oscars? Are you are you, are you beyond award shows at this point? Are you beyond TiVo? I'm way beyond TiVo. Send me an email at theclintdavis at gmail.com and let me know. All right, let's move on. Let's get to our regular look at the greatest television show theme songs of all time in a little segment that I cleverly like to call the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. It's been almost two years. I was looking back through the archive of this segment. We've done 62. This is going to be the 63rd greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And it's been almost two years, if you can believe that, since we paid tribute to a theme song from a show that aired on NBC. NBC, one of the historic, great, original, big three TV networks. And we have not in two years paid tribute to one of the Peacock shows. So I thought, again, long overdue. This time, we're going to take a trip back to the early 1970s, when there were still only the three big networks. And sitcoms were finally starting to shift into more daring territory than just focusing on the old white suburban, you know, family with the mom, dad, brother, sister thing, whatever. Uh, that was pretty much the sitcom gig for a long time. But now in the 70s, the sitcom has really started to become more of a, a, a place where you can make commentaries on, on society and on politics even, and, and just on American society in general, and not just make cute little family jokes. 
And this show was a perfect example of that. And it took off on January 14th, 1972. That was when NBC would debut a show that went on to inspire countless comedies that would follow. And it had one funky ass theme song opening it up. The show was Sanford and Son. If you don't know anything about Sanford and Son, the show starred Red Fox as the main man. He was the Sanford in the show, the older Sanford. And if you don't know anything about Red Fox, Red Fox was known as like the rawest stand-up comic of his day. He was raw. I mean, he was like legendary for how dirty his shows were, his records. People always talk about like comics who came after him would always talk about when they were kids and try like stealing copies of the Red Fox albums and them selling them in, you know, the brown bags at the record store and like trying to listen to them down in the basement without getting caught and have their parents know they were listening to it because these records were just raw and it wasn't just like raw for then it was like raw for now as well so the thought of red fox being on neutered network television was like unfathomable for anyone who knew his act but he takes the gig as this junk dealer who lives in south central la with his son and the son is like completely different than the dad the son's always trying to get rich he's trying to move up in society he wants to get away from the junk business he wants to be taken more seriously than his dad is Fox's character, meanwhile, rough, gruff, often compared to Archie Bunker, but obviously he's an older, he's a black guy, so he's attracting a whole other demographic than what the Archie Bunker character is. And Red Fox just played him to perfection. The theme song, though, that's what we're here to talk about. It was written by the legendary Quincy Jones, who has said that he wrote this song in 20 minutes. And he also said that it only took another 20 minutes to record the whole thing with this big band of guys. So if that's true, then Quincy Jones's considerable genius has been underrated somehow. Um, it sounds like an exaggeration, but I mean, why would he lie to us, I guess? Especially about something like the Sanford and Son theme song. Unlike many theme songs also, an interesting thing about this one is that it actually has a proper title. It's called The Street Beater. That's the name of the song, The Street Beater, even though it was written for the show. It was not a song that already existed. So Jones writes the theme for the show. He was among those that thought the show was not going to work because he had worked with Red Fox before, and he's like, Red Fox is not going to fly on network TV. Like, how are you going to possibly get him to do to do these scripted jokes on a like a, a TV show and not curse and not say things that are just going to send the censors through the roof. So he thought the show was going to fail miserably. But he writes the theme song for it, uh, like he said, in 20 minutes, and it's called The Street Beater. And this song would become so popular that it would actually land on Quincy Jones's own Greatest Hits album. But I was surprised to find out that it didn't land on the Billboard charts. So unlike some other great theme songs that we've covered... This one did not chart on uh, regular radio. It didn't get any radio play back in uh, the early 1970s. (laughs) 
something that I didn't realize about Sanford and Son coming into the, I was doing the research for this segment and I found out that this show was actually based on a British sitcom. I did not know that. The original series was called Steptoe and Son and it followed the same premise. It was just with two white English guys. But it was the exact same premise, you know, that you had the rough father, the pretentious son working together at this junkyard in Britain, obviously, always being at odds in terms of their personalities. That show would end up running for eight seasons in England, and it's regarded as a classic of British TV. I somehow had never heard of it, Steptoe and Son. But Sanford and Son has the same reputation in the United States and ran itself for six seasons. It ran for more episodes than Steptoe and Son, even though it ran for fewer seasons, because obviously, you know, British TV, you know, one thing about them, they do very brief seasons uh, compared to our shows here, especially back then. But it ran for six seasons on NBC before it came to an end in 1977. <laughs> Sanford and Son, produced by the legendary Norman Lear and Bud Yorkin, the late Bud Yorkin, was great TV, but its theme song, The Street Beater by Quincy Jones, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time, this week. I mean, that is just... One of those tunes like that, that's just tremendous. And I, I think it, again, nails the whole vibe of the show. I think it it gets you in the mood for it. It, it just sounds kind of, I don't know what the, I, I don't want to say like trashy to me is the word that comes to mind. And that's not a knock on the song. It's a great compliment because this is a show obviously set around a junk dealer. And this song just kind of sounds swampy, trashy, you know, even though it the show takes place in L.A., it takes place around a guy who is just rough and, and like I said, gruff, and he's he's in a nasty business, and uh, that this song I think just just nails it. So again, Quincy Jones, what what is there to say about him that hasn't already been said? But his work as a uh, TV theme song creator uh, is is sometimes underreported, and I think uh, that's one of his best pieces of work. Let's move on and talk about something new in television uh, that just aired in the last month and uh, is right now streaming for you on PBS Passport. Also, you can DVR it if you find it re-airing on PBS, which I highly recommend you do. Just search for it. The show is called Hemingway, and this is the latest documentary from Ken Burns and Lynn Novick. They are, you know, constantly taking a look, a deep dive really into some of the mythological figures of American history, whether they be people or whether they be events or whether they be periods or whether they be, uh, you know, genres of music or a type of art or a sport or uh, even a piece of iconography in American history. This time they have shifted their focus onto the legendary author Ernest Hemingway. Some say he's the greatest to ever do it in American history anyway. A lot of people think that uh, the myth of Ernest Hemingway has kind of outshone the man and the actual writer, and, and he's a guy that the myth is larger than life now when you think about it, and it's almost it almost clouds what you're able to get out of his books, I feel like, because you just know so much about him going into it. You know what... 
it's not that you know so much about him. You know what the image is. And so you're, you're kind of reading his books in a certain way. And uh, Hemingway is always a guy that I've struggled when I've tried to read his stuff because a lot of times I find his stuff to be boring almost because it's so journalistic. Even though I come from that background, when I read his stuff, it's so devoid of fluff and it's so succinct and to the point. And that was obviously his style, uh, that iceberg style of writing that he did where he just gives you the short sentences doesn't give you like any of the the symbolism or anything like that. It's all buried under the surface, and you're supposed to kind of pick it out for yourself. Um, but his his characters, I often find them to be unlikable and you know just kind of assholes. And and really, he was writing a lot of autobiographical stuff. So I wouldn't say Hemingway has been one of my favorite authors coming into this, but this documentary definitely made me want to get back into his stuff and find some things that I hadn't read yet. Certainly his short stories is what this made me. And I immediately, as soon as, as soon as it was over, went to half price books and uh, picked up a, a copy of one of his short story collections that has kind of all the best ones in it uh, that were talked about in this show. So I think that, you know, it definitely made me want to go back and read some more Hemingway books. And then I, and I checked, actually, I have this app from the Columbus library where I'm at, I'm in Columbus, Ohio, by the way. I didn't usually I say that at the beginning of the show. I'm in Columbus. I'm sitting in my closet talking to you. And Andy is in Cleveland when he does his part. So Columbus Library, they, there's this app that you can go on to and search and find like all these ebooks that you can check out. And usually you can find pretty much any ebook, especially if it's a classic one that you want to read. And you can, you know, check it out right then for a certain amount of time, like 30 days or whatever, and then it'll automatically be pulled off your your account on the on the app and then it'll it'll go back into the ether back on the shelf whatever and so i searched hemingway just his name after i'd watched the first episode just to see you know what was there and every one of his books and his short story collections were in there available to be checked out but all of them had like a backlog of like eight weeks and it was because of this documentary i ended up watching it like a week maybe two weeks after it aired so i was late to the party a little bit and so clearly all these pbs nerds like me and andy he's a big pbs nerd too uh were just flooding this app and trying to get Ernest Hemingway books so if you're trying to get his stuff um then you might want to get on it right now because it seems like everybody's watching this show and wanting to get back into reading Papa's books again. But so this movie, it's the classic Ken Burns, Lynn Novick style, all the, you know, the production values you would expect. Uh, it's got some great voice talents in it. So they picked Jeff Daniels to be the voice of Ernest Hemingway. So whenever they do a passage of a Hemingway book or whenever they read like a letter, a correspondence that Hemingway wrote, or they have like a, an interview or some kind of something that, that Hemingway said himself, they'll have Jeff Daniels read it. And this was a stroke of genius to me because when you think of like Hemingway speaking, and they actually played some clips of him speaking, and I had I don't think I had ever heard his voice before, but what, what you're picturing is like this very blustery man, bloviating, uh, you know, just being very self-important and being kind of larger than life and shouting because you you know you have to be able to hear him over the sound of the waves crashing against the side of the boat or the wild animals that he's about to shoot running around in the background but Jeff Daniels is such a like 
man, he's, he's such a, a soothing kind of reader and he's got this kind of quieter power to him. Obviously, if you, if you're familiar with Jeff Daniels acting, not dumb and dumber, but his, his dramatic acting, he's a guy that can be kind of, kind of lull you in is very, I think of him as like a thoughtful actor. I don't think of him as a guy who's larger than life at all. So to have Jeff Daniels do the voice of Hemingway, I thought was a brilliant touch. And it added another layer to the writing that I don't think would have been there if they had picked someone to read it who was more in your face and who was more, you know, obviously kind of the the big masculine voice, deep bass baritone voice reader that uh, a lot of people probably would have thought of if they were thinking of Ernest Hemingway, his voice coming out. Um, Carrie Russell also does the voice, uh, of some, he does, she does the voice of one of Hemingway's four wives. Uh, so all the wives have a different voice as well. Uh, Meryl Streep does the voice of one of them also. Uh, and then of course you've got the great Peter Coyote doing the actual narration of the whole thing. Coyote has been doing the narration on all the Burns and Novick movies of the last few years. And he does a tremendous job, um, here as well. I just, I, I love his voice. I, hope he continues to work with them for forever basically especially if they're doing kind of uh, uh you know more serious pieces like this like the vietnam war that to me that was probably my favorite ken burns movie uh coming into this but i gotta tell you after sitting down with hemingway and this is a three episode two hours each episode so it's a six hour film i think this is the best that i've seen from ken burns and from lynn novick and i think uh, that's a huge compliment because they don't miss like the, the, this team is, they don't miss and burns on his own when he wasn't directing with Novik. Novik was pretty much producing his movies from the beginning, but now she's like his co-director. And I think the, the work has gotten better since she's come in and been the co-director because she's very sharp director as well. I talked about her own documentary she did for PBS college behind bars. I talked about that a few episodes ago and I thought that was just tremendous that was the you know kind of thing emmy uh throw every kind of award you can at it because it was just great documentary important documentary filmmaking so i think novick and burns are a great team um because i mean they're both burns is known obviously for being a dogged researcher like he's just a total nerd with his research just gets deep into it and he, he's got this signature pace that just relaxes you almost while you're watching the movie and he'll hit you with these great facts um and this great history and it'll it'll feel like it's a friend telling you you know something about it but i think novick gives his work a little bit of an edge because the vietnam war movie had way more edge than like the civil war movie did um which that one almost felt like kind of romantic in a weird way but now this hemingway movie is again there's an edge to it and the research here is great. I think this this documentary does such a good job of showing us who he was and and what it was that ultimately led him to kill himself. Because if you know anything about Ernest Hemingway, he famously killed himself, just like about half of the members of his immediate family did, which is so sad. Like the, the Hemingway family going back generations is plagued by these mental health issues and plagued by suicide and Ernest Hemingway being the most famous uh, victim of that. So this movie, I just thought really got 
under all that myth making and it explored it and explored why he was so obsessed with obtaining or with uh, uh, keeping that myth up and how that probably led to his death earlier than it should have been as well and certainly led to his poor health and when he was still a pretty young man um but i i think we just this is a complicated guy and i think this movie does its best to really get to it and and surprise you with some things that even if you knew a lot about Ernest Hemingway you probably could learn some things from this one as well some insights and i thought they did a great job with the different authors that they got uh, when they were breaking down his text, because what I'm a total sucker for, in case you couldn't realize it from, you know, listening to this show where I like to break down, talk about TV shows, movies, stuff like that. I am a sucker for analysis of a text, of a film, of a show, whatever. I love it. The, the more detailed, the better, the more in the weeds, the better. And I think when I liked Hemingway the most was when they were really analyzing those books that he wrote and the short stories that he wrote. And when they would spend about 15, 20 minutes talking about one single book and some of them, they glossed over more than others, but even the, the lesser, the quote unquote, lesser ones, they still spent, gave a pretty good chunk to and talked about what the criticism was at the time, what the praise was at the time. And they talked with these authors who admire Hemingway, who are, you know, fans, but they don't love him. They're not, you know, enamored completely with Hemingway. I thought they did a tremendous job getting different authors, different points of view, uh, men, women, uh, not just white guys who have read Hemingway, not even just white women who've read Hemingway, uh, just getting a, a real mix of different kinds of very smart academic uh, authors and 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 historians and people who have studied Hemingway and people who have done autobi done biographies on him, I should say, uh, who have, you know, really studied his life and they got them to talk about him in this movie. And, and so it added an, again, a real layer of authenticity to the whole thing. So I was thrilled. I, I, I really enjoyed watching this. I thought the scenes where they, where they had Jeff Daniels reading a passage from one of the stories of the books were just moving as hell and just reminded you that about this guy's command over the language and what the great writers do when they're just writing a sentence, how much they can tell you, uh, even if it's not all spelled out there on the page, just some these beautiful ob observations that he would make and so brutal at times, but w delivered without any kind of over-the-top drama, without any histrionics, anything like that. Uh, and that's really the power of Hemingway. It's all understated, very understated, but he's talking about heady, heavy stuff. So I think if you weren't a Hemingway person, this documentary would make you certainly want to read some of his books. Uh, and if you are a Hemingway person, I think this documentary will teach you some more things about him and put him in a more realistic light than what you've seen already. So I cannot recommend this thing anymore. Like I said, I, to me now, this is my favorite Ken Burns, Lynn Novick movie. This is my favorite Ken Burns movie, period. I, I just think it, the, I love the length. Uh, I thought they covered everything. Um, and I was thrilled with it. So, you know, but again, I'm not a huge Hemingway expert. So maybe there were things that they glossed over, didn't cover. But I, I thought they got the warts, obviously. I thought they got the great things about him. 
Um, and it was just tremendous. It was so interesting all the way through um, that I, I I was bummed to see it end. I wanted to see it kind of keep going. I'm like, oh, that's that's it. When the credits finally rolled, I was I was bummed. I'm like, where's the Hemingway the tenth inning? When's that one gonna come out? So uh, again, it's streaming now on PBS Passport. If you have that, and if you uh, don't have that, then just search your your guide for Hemingway and uh, DVR it from PBS because I'm sure they're going to be re-airing it, I have to imagine here, over time. Check it out at your library as well. They'll probably end up having it on DVD and maybe Blu-ray there also. Give this thing a watch. Six hours, well worth your time, and uh, it'll reignite your love maybe for uh, reading American classics. So that's that's something that's hard to argue with as well. Andy, when I asked him about it because he watched it too, he... No one has seen more Ken Burns movies that I know than Andy. He's like a huge Ken Burns nerd. Uh, he said that he loved it, but he still thinks he likes the Roosevelts and the Dust Bowl better. So there you go. I, the Roosevelts I saw, I wasn't crazy about the Roosevelts. It it bored me a little bit, to be honest with you. Um, Teddy Roosevelt always just has kind of gotten on my nerves. Um so that was that was a tough one for me to sit through. I have not seen the Dust Bowl one yet, so I'm definitely gonna have to watch that. And Andy said he 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 probably considers the Dust Bowl his favorite of all the Ken Burns movies. So that is some high praise right there. But anyway, Hemingway, check it out now, uh, courtesy of PBS. All you have to do is write one true sentence. Write the truest sentence that you know. We've been thinking about Hemingway for literally decades. You have someone who is often considered the greatest American novelist and has an outsized life. It's hard to think of a subject that's more iconic than Ernest Hemingway. Within a few sentences of reading a Hemingway story, you were not in any confusion as to who had written it. Hemingway can be read as he wanted it to be by ordinary folks. And yet, beneath it is as deep an exploration of art and the human experience as that is just miraculous to me. He was always questing. The perfect line had not happened yet. It was always a struggle trying to get it right, and you never will. Before I toss things over to Andy, I wanted to mention also that uh, on Apple TV+, Plus, if you have a subscription to that, um, you should check out the Oprah Conversation and this is a show that she's been doing for a couple of years now where she basically does celebrity interviews. And she recently did a sit down with Elliot Page. Um, and this interview between Elliot Page and Oprah was Elliot Page's first TV interview since coming out as trans. Um, and he did the whole like Time Magazine, uh, big Time Magazine cover story that uh, I need to check out. But this was the first big TV interview for Elliot Page since... Uh, coming out as trans. So it was a huge moment. And watching this, this was big for Apple TV Plus, I think, because it got a lot of pub. First off, I was reading, you know, things about it everywhere. And this is probably the biggest thing that Apple TV Plus has had on its airwaves yet. So Oprah delivers once again. Uh, she proves that she is really the best in the business. That This interview was very good. It's like, it's like 40 minutes long. It's not as long as the uh, sit down that she did recently with 
uh, Megan and Prince Harry, which I also watched and thought was was fascinating TV. It was Oprah at her best. I mean, you talk about just making people comfortable. She Oprah is so good. If she's not actually interested in what the people are saying, then give her the fucking Emmy every single year because she seems like she is genuinely interested in everything that every guest is saying to her. And she's so prepared and she's so congenial, but she asks great questions that you are thinking of while you're sitting there. And she plays this like, I'm a, you know, like almost like she's just one of the fans, even though she's arguably the most powerful person in media. Uh, but she play, never plays it off that way. Like you're never watching Oprah and thinking, God, she's such an asshole. She's cause she just isn't. Um, and, and I think she's just brilliant. So Oprah's the best. It's it, that's watching a conductor work at the orchestra is when you watch Oprah do uh, a celebrity interview and her interview with Megan and Harry was, was great. It was one of the, it's going to go down as one of the most important TV moments of this generation for sure. Certainly of live TV. Uh, and this interview with Elliot page was just as good. It, it was not as the only thing that bothered me about this Elliot page interview, they used this kind of technology where Oprah was like at her house in Hawaii and Elliot was in Canada. So, but they made it look seamless. Like it looked like they were in the room together. It was pretty cool how they did it. Like it was totally just looks like they're sitting in the room together, but they're on, you know, different. I mean, they they couldn't be farther apart, basically Canada and Hawaii. Uh, but you could tell when they talked that they were talking like in a zoom kind of way. I don't know how to explain it. Like it was almost like both of them would be kind of raising their voice. Like they are when you're talking to somebody in zoom, like you're not talking in the tone that you speak with when you're sitting five feet away from somebody in a room in a quiet room, which is what it looked like they were doing. But when they talked, there was kind of that disconnect and there was little, there were little delays between them saying things and answering. So that felt a little weird to me, but it did look cool. Um, but I'd almost rather just know that you're, you're taping something remote and not try to fake us out and make us think that, yeah, oh, they're in the room together. Uh, because that doesn't, it, it just feels fake to me in that, at that point, it feels like, well, if you can do that, then, you know, why have any interview be face to face anymore? Um, but the face to face is obviously better every time. But this was one of those interviews that wasn't like a grilling session. She wasn't trying to get Oprah wasn't trying to get like some crazy gotcha answers out of Elliot Page. This was more one of those kind of things where it was a celebration of a person's bravery in coming out and in, uh, you know, bringing their authentic self to light after all these years of being a celebrity, because Elliot Page has been a celebrity for a long time. I mean, he's been in movies, you know, since he's little, basically. And we felt like we knew him. And we've seen him in some of the biggest blockbusters, uh, you know, and some of the most Oscar-favorited movies. You know, you think of Juno and you think of uh, Inception, obviously. And even going back to, like, An American Crime, I mean, and Hard Candy. You know, Elliot Page has been in a lot of really... Cool movies, a lot of good movies. I always liked his work. So uh, this was a, a, a good interview, and I thought it was moving, and I thought Paige really went into um, a lot of the politics of today and how trans lives are in danger, how the trans identity is just people are trying to sweep it under the rug. Um, and also, though, how visible trans people are now 
and how the genie can't go back into the bottle. But, you know, you've got a lot of Republican lawmakers, especially that are trying to put it back in the bottle and act like these people don't exist or like they're not they don't count as much. They're not worth as much. So it's the same playbook we've seen a million times with, you know, we, we've seen it with black people. We've seen it with um, immigrants, especially from Mexico. We've seen it with, we saw it with immigrants from Ireland as well. A long time ago, we've seen it with gay people and uh, we're seeing it with trans people now. So it's just kind of a new group every time. I don't know who the next one will be, but uh, it's certainly going to happen again. So but this was this is worth your time if you've got Apple TV Plus. If it's one of those things where you've got the the free you know version of it, and you're just like, I don't ever click on that app. I never even know what to watch there. Uh, then do yourself a favor and click on the Oprah conversation. She's got sit downs with a lot of interesting people there. Uh, but the Elliot Page one is certainly a good place to start. That's an important forty minutes, I would say, of your time to uh, to check it out. And again, watching Oprah work, she's just she's the master. She's the best. There's nobody better at interviewing celebrities than Oprah. She's bar none on 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 planet Earth right now. She is it, the god of the sit down, Oprah Winfrey. Check it out, the Oprah conversation on Apple TV Plus. Sitting down with Elliot Page, definitely worth your time. All right, Andy, take it away, my friend. I'm going to sit back and take a few sips here. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. I, uh, I, I loved that Hemingway documentary. I, I really did. There is no better teacher than Ken Burns. I'll watch anything that he does. And if I'm not interested at first, it doesn't take long. But I'm glad to be with you after taking a month off. It's true, I was gambling in Havana. Took a minor risk, but Warren got me out of it. My name's Andy Sedlak. I talk about music here on the Stream Police Podcast. We talk about uh, trends, tunes that are under the radar, tunes that are mainstream, you name it. But since we last talked, we lost... A couple very significant figures in American music. Artists who are uniquely American. Uniquely American, although in extremely different ways. Anyway, I figured it would be a dereliction of duty not to touch on them, their lives, their music, their stories. And maybe I could give you a deep cut here and there so that you really get to know their work. Something you can stream later. Something beyond the hits. It's time to get off the trail and into the tall grass, my friends. That, that is what this show 
is all about. If you haven't already, please uh, rate and review us. That goes a very long way in, in just sort of making us visible in the grand podcast universe. Becoming more crowded every minute. And if you have uh, a few thoughts on your mind and you would like to get those down too, boy, that would that'd be nice. We appreciate that. When I talk about uh, artists that we lost in the past month, I'm guessing there is one that probably comes to mind first. Think about it. Over the past month in April of 2021, who do we lose? Probably doesn't take long before you think of this. DMX Simmons died from a heart attack related to a drug overdose on April 9th. DMX was on an astounding 47 singles between 1997 and 2021. His first featured alongside Master P, Method Man, Red Man, and Cannabis on the LL Cool J track 4321. Do you remember it? Here it is. When the lights is out, they don't come back on. But say the flick, you ain't gonna come back on. You ain't that strong. No, it ain't strong. But you ask for it, baby. Use a big, a scheme, ask for it, baby. So I can hit you up on front street. Because dumb sweet, one heat, one deep, leave behind. One Cut sweet. my mic on. A song called X Moves by DMX was released to YouTube on April 8th of this year. DMX was in a vegetative state at the time of its release. He died less than 24 hours later. Bootsy Collins, among others, is featured on that track. This is the latest from the late DMX. Uh, if it ain't rough, it ain't me. So don't hit me because they leave. I've been talking about how motherfucking great DMX is. Demon with his own venom. Don't get rappers and shove fucking microphones in them. DMX was 50 years old. You could argue that he was the hardest rapper to ever achieve mainstream success. He rapped in a very hardcore era of rap, and I'm not sure anyone was sharper or more violent than he was. And if you're looking to impress your friends with your knowledge of DMX and his deep cuts, I suggest The Professional, released on his 1999 album, and then there was X. Pop, 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 pop. I can catch you in the very building that you live in. Uh. Wait until you get right at your door to start spitting. Right. Now they got a ribbon tied to the rail at the top of the steps. What? I was there. You ain't die at the top of the steps. Right. I could do that walk behind you shit and follow you home. Make a noise. You turn around and I put one of your dome. The album that song is from also included Party Up, 
which rose to number 27 on the charts in 2000. It was a massive hit and just recharted again recently after his death. Once again, it was a genuine top 40 single, getting to exactly number 40 on the Billboard Hot 100 in April of 2021, some 21 years after its initial release. I have a complicated relationship, personally, with that song. It's a hard song. Google the lyrics. Google the lyrics. Just Google them. It's nonstop brutality, nonstop. And yet, when I hear it, I think of middle school dances. Oh, yeah. They played this at my middle school dances. Everett's Middle School. The edited, ver- the edited version, of course, but still. If you listen to the edited version, it, it, it really doesn't leave much to the imagination. The mommy of a strip club. Every time you come around, it's like, what? I just gotta get my ass up. And I don't know who the f*** you think you're talking to. Oh, there's the girl from math class. Oh, there's Leah. She's cute. Ah, there's Mr. Bogart. And this is what was playing during that experience. Y'all gonna make me lose my mind. Up in here, up in here. Y'all gonna make me go all out. Up in here, up in here. <laughs> so absurd. Absurd. I remember everybody in a big circle. You could kind of scream the chorus, and that's what they did. You know, it's just absurd. Pickway County, Ohio. Oh, there's Colin chugging a Sprite. There's that kid, that weird kid who never talks to anybody, but for some reason he's out there trying to dance. This is strange. DMX was in a group with Jay-Z and Ja Rule in the 1990s called Murder, Inc. It didn't last. And the backbiting began really as that group disintegrated. DMX accused Ja Rule of copying his style, and he may have had a point. He publicly called for a rap battle with Jay-Z until the day he died. No way it was ever going to happen after Jay-Z reached billionaire status but you can't help but wonder how entertaining that might have been dmx was jailed 30 times between 1986 and 2018 offenses included robbery assault carjacking tax evasion drug offenses he stole a dog from the junkyard in the 80s it probably wasn't his first brush with the law though it would be one of the more noteworthy. In spite of it, DMX had a style that really hasn't been replicated since. Guys have tried. We mentioned Ja Rule. But the secret to DMX's flow and the reason that he was so engaging was because of these little asides that he would throw into his rhymes. Although he rapped about horrific shit. It felt personal and (laughs) sincere, for better or worse. And he had a knack for picking out little bits of detail. It really just made things seem real. I'm thinking about the 
this song where he's talking uh, about a kid who wants to be a gangster. The song is called Here We Go Again. DMX tries to protect him, but the kid ends up turning on him. DMX is so engaging in in the way that he relays this story that he's like he's like an old 19th century bard spinning this yarn. It's a cliche, but the man was a storyteller. He had this narrative heft about him. It was a skill that was simply set within the hip-hop context. The sentiment at the heart of it, though, at least seemed real. Here's that song, by the way. This is called Here We Go Again. It's fuck me, nigga. No, it's fuck I can't me. get the shorty to try to help him understand. Uh, Hit him with work, because, yo, that's my little man. Uh, he asked a few questions about the game, and I told him. Yeah. So when he made a bad move, it was my place to scold him. I, Never told him nothing wrong. Kept it fair. Didn't listen, so I might as well have been talking to the air. Everybody makes mistakes, a mistake is I. But if it ain't, I'ma tell you straight, time to say goodnight. Nobody likes to be played, regardless of the relationship. But Shorty's fucking up big time. I hate this shit. I'm caught in the middle of having love for a little nigga. No one was expected of me as a real nigga. My next move is crucial. What do I do? How do I keep it real with Shorty and my crew? Didn't want to kill him, so instead of putting the Mac on him, I did the only thing I could do, turn my back on him. That production is is so crisp, too. He worked with uh, Swiss Beats a lot. Still sounds good. Still sounds good. It was released at the, the tail end of 1999. DMX. 50 years old. DMX wasn't the only artist to pass away in the month of April. Ten days after DMX died, Jim Steinman died at the age of 73. Jim Steinman is not a household name. He is a songwriter. He wrote the songs that other people sang. But when he died, it it reminded me of a story that... If not for a twist of fate, he could have been a household name. He could have been. I'll explain that in a second. First of all, who was Jim Steinman? Well, he wrote this song, which, you know. That was a number one song in 1983. Bonnie Tyler recorded it. Jim Steinman wrote it. Baby, baby, if I kiss you like this, and if you whisper like that, 
That hit number two in 1996. Celine Dion recorded it. Jim Steinman wrote it. And he didn't merely indulge pop acts. Um, This song was number one on the alternative charts in 1990. The Sisters of Mercy recorded it. Once again, Jim Steinman wrote it. But you can't talk about Jim Steinman without talking about Meatloaf. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know that I am unapologetically a fan of Meatloaf. A lot of people, everybody knows Meatloaf. They've heard of him. They know Meatloaf. No one knows Jim Steinman. I mean, fans do. But in pop culture, people just know Meatloaf. And ultimately, Steinman did not lead a bad life. He was the man behind Meatloaf's biggest successes. I'm talking about songs like Two Out of Three Ain't Bad, Bad Out of Hell, Rock and Roll Dreams Come True, I'd Do Anything for Love, But I Won't Do That. All of these songs performed by Meatloaf, but written by Jim Steinman. But here's where that twist of fate comes in. That twist of fate that I alluded to earlier. When these two were just starting out, they were actually performing as a duo. It was Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. Before they began work on an album in 1977, the record company thought it would be easier to promote it as just a Meatloaf project. And Steinman's name was dropped. They thought it was no big deal at the time. Hell, what were the odds that this album would go anywhere? But ultimately, it sold tens of millions of copies. It was called Bat Out of Hell. It went platinum 14 times in the United States alone, then another 25 times platinum in Australia, 11 times platinum in the UK, still one of the best-selling albums ever. But all of a sudden, those two guys were now pigeonholed. They had their roles, and they couldn't be marketed otherwise. As a result... It took a massive toll on each of their lives. But you don't need me to to tell you this story. Why don't you hear it from Jim Steinman himself? Here he is describing this situation in 2003. Originally, it wasn't Meatloaf. It was Meatloaf and Jim Steinman. Uh, We were a duo in the sense, a different kind. But it was was for two, two and a half, three years, we were working as Meatloaf and Jim Steinman, like whole notes. So I was stunned because David was his manager. And when we got to CBS to sign the record deal, I remember it was a big table, like 12 people. And the president, Walter Yetnikoff, was at one end. And they sent the contract around to be signed. And it went by me. 
I wasn't there to sign it. I remember being surprised. Like, hey, wait, I, I didn't get to sign it. I said, well, you're not in it. And that was the first I found out that they had taken my name off. I just remember being really startled and sort of shattered, just because in my mind it was a very cool thing to have this combination of a songwriter, pianist, and a singer. I didn't know of any example of that, and I thought it was really cool. Um, it was the reason all of our auditions were just piano and, and him. It was what we intended the whole thing to be, a piano in the center of the stage, and it would be like that. Steinman actually speculates that that action took a greater toll on Meatloaf's life than his own. I still believe, honestly, had it kept the original credit, I suppose this is a little self-serving, but I don't mean it that way, I think Meat would have had a much easier time over the last 30 years. Because one thing Meat will admit to, I'm sure, is he'll constantly say, I never wanted to be a star. I'm not comfortable being a star. And he had a lot of breakdowns and problems, which I think had a lot to do with it was just his name. He felt much more comfortable when it was the two of us because we shared the burden. And he wasn't the person who had to come up with the creative work. He didn't have to write the stuff. I think when he felt his name was there, because you know how the audience is. The audience thinks actors make up their lines. They think the singer, to this day, a lot of people think Meatloaf wrote the songs. That proved to be a great burden on him, and I think taxed everything. I still, to this day, honestly believe, had it been billed as a duo, Meat would not have had one-tenth of the problems he had psychologically. Bat out of hell, to this day, is one of my five or six favorite albums. It has the particular distinction in my mind of having both the best love song and the best party song on the same record. The love song is called For Crying Out Loud. It's about seven minutes, and it's everything that I've ever associated with the emotion of love. The sheet music belongs in the Smithsonian. The party song, on the other hand, is called Paradise by the Dashboard Light. Paradise by the Dashboard Light. I'm sure you've heard it. But it's nice to hear it with an intro by Meatloaf. So here is Meatloaf, followed by the song. You want to know about Paradise? Paradise by the Dashboard Light was written by Jim Steinman, as everything else on the album was. And I said, Jimmy, write a duet for the record. He says, what? I said, write a duet for the record. He goes, well, how about a uh, guy and a girl in the backseat of a car? I said, sounds great, write it. About an hour and a half later, he'd come up with the first half and told me what the rest of it was. That was one of his quick songs. I mean, that was the major triumph because it took us five years to even get to the point of finishing the record. People uh, saying to me, oh, I think you're great, but who's this weird guy with you that's writing all these strange songs? And I'm going, he's one of the best songwriters in America and you're a jerk for not realizing it, you know? I've been saying he's one of the like top five songwriters. I really honestly believe at this point in time that he is probably the best songwriter, uh, contemporary songwriter there is. No, you never gonna regret it. That song got to number 39 on the Billboard chart, a miracle at the time, 
considering its length, and that the industry at that moment revolved around disco, punk, and kind of the light singer-songwriter songs. I'm a massive Jim Steinman fan. Aside from his work with Meatloaf, I have his 1980 solo album, the only one he ever did. It's called Bad for Good. That's in my vinyl collection. I've tracked down things like the Road to Hell soundtrack. (laughs) With a little-known gem on it called Tonight is what it means to be in love. I don't even know who the artist is. If you want to impress your friends with a Steinman deep cut, play them Surf's Up from 1980. He does not sing lead on this. A gentleman named Rory Dodd takes the lead vocal here. Rory Dodd also is the male voice on Bonnie Tyler's Total Eclipse of the Heart. A lot of people think that is Meatloaf. It's not Meatloaf. It's Rory Dodd. And here is Dodd singing Jim Steinman's Surf's Up. And my body is burning like a naked wire I want to turn on the juice I want to fall in the fire I'm going to drown in the ocean and the bottomless sea I want to give you what I'm hoping you'll be giving to me And when the waves are pounding on the sand tonight I want to take your hand and make it good and make it right And now the sky is trembling and the moon is pale We're on the edge of forever and we're never gonna fail, no Oh, Lord Oh, Lord Oh, Lord, do I gotta try Rest in peace, Jimmy Steinman, and rest in peace, DMX, two uniquely American artists. All right. You know we're building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify by searching Stream Police Playlist. Every month we had five more songs, and I thought Clint did a fabulous job last month handling the massive responsibility of adding kindling to this proverbial fire. Now, here are this month's selections. First, oh, this one's trouble. It's banned in the USA by the Two Live Crew. The First Amendment gave us freedom of speech. So what you're saying, it didn't include me? I like to party and have a good time. There's nothing but pleasure written in our rhymes. I know you don't think we'll ever quit. We got some people on our side that won't take your lip. We're going to do all the things we want to do. You can't stand to see a brother get as rich as you. This is the 90s and we're coming on strong. Saying things and doing things that you're saying's wrong. Wising up, because on election day, we'll see who's banned in the USA. You know, we acknowledge DMX, we acknowledge Jim Steinman, we must also acknowledge Shock G, who died on April 22nd. You may know him better as Humpty Hump from Digital Underground. So just let me introduce myself, my name is Humpty. 
pronounced with the umpty. Yo, ladies, oh, how I like to funk thee. And all the rappers in the top ten, please allow me to bump thee. I'm stepping tall, y'all, and just like Humpty Dumpty, you're gonna fall when the stereos pump me. I like to rhyme, I like my beats funky, I'm spunky. I like my oatmeal lumpy, I'm sick with this. Straight gangster Mac. But sometimes I get ridiculous I'll eat up all your crackers and your licorice Oh, yo, fat girl Come here, are you ticklish? Yeah, I called you fat Look at me, I'm skinny It never stopped me from getting busy I'm a freak I like the girls with the boom I once got busy in a Burger King bathroom I'm crazy Allow me to amaze thee they- Let's switch gears and go with this, uh, this riff fest The song's called Pray by Parkway Drive Right, let's see. That's three, two more. Uh, you know, I really don't like <laughs> Father John Misty. I think his songs are incredibly smug. But I do like this. Uh, this is called, Well, You Can Do It Without Me. If you're bound for the throne, but the king won't die, I can occupy the queen, but that's for her and I. I can do it. Finally, from 1928, it's Jimmy Rogers and Carolina Sunshine Girl. I mentioned this song was cut in 1928. Keep in mind, the electric microphone was just invented in 1925. But in order to really understand songwriting, you have to go back to those early, early days. You have to go back to songs like Carolina Sunshine Girl. That's it. Nice little variety. Thanks so much. Good to be back with you. Clint's going to talk about Godzilla versus Kong. 
which I really liked. Let's see if he did. Clint, take it away. Thank you very much, my friend. Rest in peace, DMX. I mean, a true, a true legend. About as hardcore as they ever came, man. MC Ren and DMX. I don't know who was harder, but uh, they were both. They are both certainly right up there because Ren's still alive, but uh, DMX gone way too soon, way way too soon. I was I was really, I was sad to see that one. He was an original. So I want to talk about some movies. Uh, speaking about intimidating people, uh, or I guess in this case it would be intimidating creatures. I got back into watching the Warner Brothers MonsterVerse. I watched it from start to at least current the current point, not start to finish. I watched all four movies in the Warner Brothers MonsterVerse in the last month. I was having this thing. If you follow me on Instagram, you see what movies I watch when I watch them. And I was just doing this thing for a week at my house called Big Loud Movie Week. And so I was just watching big, loud movies. Some people call them dumb movies, but these are not... I wasn't trying to watch dumb ones. I was trying to watch just big, loud movies. Not necessarily ones that are stupid or poorly made or whatever. I wasn't trying to watch like purposefully bad movies so i decided how can you get bigger or louder than monster movies and you really can't so i finished out my big loud movie week by watching all four of them i watched godzilla i watched kong skull island i watched godzilla king of the monsters and i watched godzilla versus kong which was the latest one and it was all all four of them were streaming on hbo max now you can still watch godzilla Kong Skull Island and Godzilla King of the Monsters on HBO Max right now, but you cannot watch Godzilla vs. Kong because that's the one that's in theaters right now. So they had it on HBO Max for like 30 days like they do with all their new movies, and then they took it off. So I got to watch it just before the the, the time ended. And just let me tell you that if you, if you miss that one, then you're not missing much. Like it was definitely the worst of the four. And I will say that I think they got progressively worse as they went on. Like, I loved, loved Godzilla. I really also, Kong Skull Island I actually saw in theaters, so this was my second time sitting down with it. I really liked Kong Skull Island a lot, too. Loved might be a little strong, but I really did like it a lot. I just think they did a lot of really good things with the Kong story and with, you know, the effects were just brilliant, and I thought the cast was great. Um... And I just liked it. It was just a romp, man. It was just fun. Uh, but it was a well-done movie. And then Godzilla King of the Monsters, you know, it kind of fell off a little bit for me there. And then Godzilla vs. Kong was just kind of stupid, <laughs> to be honest with you. But uh, but I would say that I liked all four of them. And I really, this MonsterVerse is something that I'm going to be continuing to check out as they come out. I mean, I like what they've done with these and I'm going to continue. I'll be seeing the next one in theaters. I can guarantee you that even though my enjoyment of each of them got less and less as they went on. And I had a drink in my hand for every one of them. Uh, but I'll go see the next one when it comes out. I don't care, man. These are big monsters. They've got them in great CGI. Now they look brilliant and they put the thing with these movies is if you haven't watched any of these, they put together like a brilliant cast of humans 
in every single one of these. Like, these casts are ridiculously good, way too good to be doing this kind of a movie. Honestly, that's one of my biggest complaints about these movies. They'll put together this great human cast and then underuse pretty much everybody. Like, case in point, the first one, Godzilla, which I think is probably the best of all four so far. Elizabeth Olsen is in this in the movie, and she just gives this really moving, powerful performance. But all she is is she's only in like four scenes that are very brief, and she essentially plays like the main character's wife. And she's just you know what what's happened to my husband? Where is he? Is he lost? Is he dead? She's worried about him the whole time, and she's really just it's powerful because Elizabeth Olsen is a great actor. She's been a great actor since the first times we saw her. I mean, I, if you never saw Martha Marcy May Marlene, then go out and check that one out right away. I remember seeing it when it came out, and I was just like, oh my god, who is Elizabeth Olsen? Like, why did we never hear of her when her sisters were just dominating? You know, the, the, the we're dominating Hollywood, basically. Uh, but she is a really a great actor. A lot of people have seen it now because of her performances in the Marvel movies um, and, and her performances now on Disney Plus and WandaVision, uh, which I haven't gotten around to yet, but I need to check out because I'm just a great admirer of hers. But she's great in the first movie, but she's just barely in it. And then Brian Cranston, same deal. Again, great actor, obviously. We've seen his talents many times, but... He's just in the first movie for a little bit, and then he's gone. And you're like, that was it? Uh, and, and the latest one, Godzilla vs. Kong, was even worse. So they've got Zhang Ziyi in it, who I hadn't seen in a while, uh, but I really like her a lot. She does very little in the movie. She does deliver a couple of uh, a couple funny lines. but And I swear to God, not kidding you, Lance Reddick... And if you don't know Lance Reddick, trust me, you know him. Just search him and you'll know exactly who I'm talking about. Lance Reddick was in a single scene for like 30 seconds of Godzilla vs. Kong. I swear to God. And I know he was in the credits, so he was de- it was definitely him. He's in like 30 seconds of this movie. I mean, this is one of the most reliable guys in the business when it comes to giving you authority and intensity in short bursts. And he's reduced to extra status, so his part gets left on the cutting room floor. So that's my biggest knock against these MonsterVerse movies. They'll get all this these great, you know, actors to fill these human parts. And then they just underuse half of them. So it just feels like, well, why did you even get Lance Reddick? You could have got just some generic guy to do that part if he was going to be in it for like 25, 30 seconds. Uh, I mean, there's no reason to even call a guy who's that talented to do something like that. So that's the only thing that bummed me out. But anyway, I like the MonsterVerse movies is what I'm trying to say. I think uh, they're just fun. And and this is the way you kind of do monster movies is, you, you know, you give us something to care about with the human characters, but leave it up to the monsters to do all the cool shit. Let them do all the cool shit. I don't even really care about seeing the human people doing car chases, shootouts, anything like that. Don't care. Just want to see the monsters do the cool shit. Let the humans set everything up. Give us, you know, a little bit of, uh, give us a little bit of collateral damage to worry about as all the buildings are being torn down. But what we want to see, really, is we want to see Godzilla and Mothra, and we want to see Mecha Godzilla, and we want to see King Kong, and we want to see all these other kick-ass monsters fighting each other in some city and destroying the entire city. So it's ridiculous, of course. 
Uh, and, and what I thought when I was sitting down with these MonsterVerse movies was I thought I was going to get like the next, the the Planet of the Apes trilogy, the Caesar movies that, you know, just ended a few years ago. Those Andy Circus Planet of the Apes movies. But this did not quite meet that bar. Those were really good, like as far as action drama, you know, special effects driven action drama films. Those Planet of the Apes movie, movies were really good, actually had me in tears at the end of the last one, if I'm being honest with you in theaters. Uh, this does not quite meet that level. So if you're looking for that kind of depth, you're not going to get it in Godzilla and, and the MonsterVerse movies, but they are cool, uh, I will say. And I think you know the, the action, the fights are really, really well done and really memorable. So check them out. They're streaming now on HBO Max, Godzilla through Godzilla King of the Monsters, at least. And you have friends coming over or something, you want to watch some stuff over a weekend or a, a night where you're having some drinks, throw these on. I mean, at least Godzilla and, and Kong Skull Island. You'll have a good time with those. This alpha predator of yours, Doctor, do you really think he has a chance? The arrogance of man is thinking nature is in our control and not the other way around. Let them fight. And while we're talking about movies that are on HBO Max that won't be winning awards anytime soon, uh, let's talk about Mortal Kombat for a second. The uh, newest cinematic reboot of Mortal Kombat is now streaming on HBO Max. It's another one of those that's only streaming for 30 days. So by the time you listen to this, it might be gone already, and it'll it'll come back at some point. But it's in theaters right now. So they've only got it streaming there for a month before it disappears, and then it'll, it'll come back again out of the vault at some point. Um, but not really soon, uh, according to what I've read. So anyway, Mortal Kombat... I figured why the hell not. Again, I was having Big Loud Movie Week. I'm like, fuck it. I'll watch Mortal Kombat. I mean, I know this is going to be shitty, but let's check it out. So, But I had my hopes kind of up because I really think, and I've been playing the Mortal Kombat game since the second one. That was the first one that I really remember playing. I probably played the first one too, but I really remember playing the second one. I played with my uncle. He had it on Sega Genesis, and uh, I thought it was just cool. And then the 3D ones I played a lot as well. And I, I've played most of them. I, I didn't play the most recent one, but I played the one before that. And I usually do the story mode on them. And I like the story mode. And I think the story, the universe, the overall, the aesthetic, the characters, just the way they're designed, the gore, everything, there's something is so dark and just grimy and nasty about the Mortal Kombat universe that I think lends itself well to cinema. And I think in the the way that you know Bruce Lee's kind of some of his best movies were just so about the fights and the story was so minor 
but they still work and you can still watch those movies. Let like Jackie Chan not so much cuz Chan was always more he tried to get like give you a real character and he tried his movies were always funnier and he did try to give you a good story and he gave you these big set piece action scenes. Bruce Lee's movies were mostly about the fights and Lee was kind of playing a version of himself all the time or he was playing a version of this kind of ass kicking, you know, kung fu guy. So I feel like in the the vein of an Enter the Dragon or something, there is something in Mortal Kombat that can make a great movie, but no one has managed to find it yet, including this one. This one really let me down. It was so, it was so stupid, my friend. This movie was so dumb. And I had people messaging me after I watched it and I, I posted just how dumb the movie was. And I had, you know, one guy agree with me. Another guy said, hey, you know, it's it's it, you're supposed to turn your brain off. And, uh, you know, you, you're not supposed to be thinking about this movie very much. And it's like, well, that's I that's tough for me. I don't subscribe to the whole just turn your brain off. Like it's still got to give me something, even if it's a dumb movie. Like it has to have something there. Like I've watched plenty of movies that were shitty, but I really liked a lot. Like the substitute comes to mind and, you know kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme comes to mind. Just movies that are like dumber than shit, dumber than a box of rocks, but I really like them and I watch them over and over again because there's something there. There's a, there's cinema there. This is, doesn't have anything. This is like soulless, stupid filmmaking. Uh, and it's just the thing that, so I'll give them credit for one thing. The gore and the visual effects are really well done. The, the fights are actually done well uh, also but the gore was really good in this and if you're going to have a Mortal Kombat movie you got to have good gore it's got to be nasty and I think they did a good job with the gore in this they had some really gross fatalities happen in the fights um, but the acting was just B, C, it was like C level acting and the main character himself was just so uninteresting just not didn't move me whatsoever. If you're going to focus a movie like Mortal Kombat on a new character who's original, and that's what it was, they they made up a new character to be the main character of the movie. They didn't focus it on one of the classic Mortal Kombat fighters from the, the video game series. They wanted to come up with a new character and make him the star of this whole thing. If you're going to do that, you better make damn sure that it's going to be someone that's at least half as interesting as the people that are in the games or the creatures that are in the games. And they did not do that here. I mean, this guy was so generic vanilla action, you know, lead. Um, they tried to give it some real stakes, like his family's in danger and that whole, you know, chestnut, but just was nothing here to really pull you one way or another for this guy. Like what I will say that I think is the most damning criticism of this main character in the Mortal Kombat movie, is that if you put him in a Mortal Kombat game, I cannot imagine a single person picking this guy as their their fighter. Like, I just cannot imagine anyone being like, oh yeah, I gotta rush over and pick him. Because he's just not interesting. So, again, this is Mortal Kombat. You've got some of the like coolest, most well-designed, and, and just flat-out weird characters uh, that I've ever seen in a video game and you make the lead of the movie just this kind of generic vanilla guy 
who wants needs to protect his family. I mean, it was very boring. The whole thing also just felt like a bunch of excuses for forced in fan service and catchphrases. I mean, I, I shit you not. Like, if you right now think of any catchphrase from the Mortal Kombat series, any of them, you it's in the movie. Like, they found a way to put it into the movie, shoehorned it in, forced it in so badly. I'm not even kidding you. At one point, one of the characters beats somebody, kills him, and then just says to nobody in particular, just to the air, basically, flawless victory. He just says it. Flawless victory. Like, as if that's a phrase that people use in day-to-day life. Like, if anyone knows what that means outside of the video game Mortal Kombat. And I, I think that was the moment that really sealed it for me. I was just like, holy shit, this is terrible. I think I got another drink at that point. The whole thing just felt like a big prequel also for something bigger, which is a big complaint to me with, you know, you hear about a lot of movies today because everyone's trying to set up the next big franchise. Everybody wants the next MCU Everybody wants the next big universe that they can just keep going back to the well over and over and over again. And Mortal Kombat lends itself to that because there are so many characters and because it's basically infinite. You can just keep having great, cool fights, killing characters and bringing in new ones all the time. uh, And you'll never run out of material, essentially. Um, But everyone forgets that Iron Man, the movie that kicked all this off, Iron Man was one hell of a movie. That could have existed just fine with no sequel, no bigger world following it. It would have been just fine. It would still be remembered as a very good movie because it was just a good movie existing on its own, standing on its own uh, two feet. And so that's what everyone forgets now. And Mortal Kombat just becomes another movie that feels like, oh, they're trying to set up something else. And that's exactly what it feels like. You know, it's got the... the uh, must have tacked on at the end teaser for the sequel, uh, which is just so hackneyed at this point. So, uh, you know, I was very disappointed with the Mortal Kombat movie. You know, you could say, what did you expect? But again, I I think there's something in the Mortal Kombat universe that can make a really good action movie. I'm not saying like it's going to be best picture winner at the Oscars. I'm saying there's a really good adult action movie in Mortal Kombat somewhere. I also kept waiting for the tournament to start because to me, the best thing about Mortal Kombat is the tournament one-on-one and then you kill them and then you move on to the next round and you fight somebody else like Enter the Dragon. That's why that movie's so kick-ass because the tournament, the whole thing is just great. Like Kickboxer, again, you have all these great fighting movies. The tournament is what it's all about and Mortal Kombat is a tournament. And yet they didn't, they kept saying the tournament's on But the tournament, like, never really started. I kept waiting for the tournament to happen, and it just didn't. So I was let down. Mortal Kombat, streaming right now on HBO Max. You know, I'd say skip it unless you're looking for... Unless you're, like, a diehard Mortal Kombat person. But if so, then you've probably already watched it. But uh, it was just... It was dumb. I, I don't think it was dumb even in a good way. I'd tell you to stick to the one from the 90s. I think it was better... Watch the 1990s Mortal Kombat, because at least it had a plot. This one did not have a story like it was just not going anywhere. Uh, But the 90s one actually had a story, 
And the production values in the 90s one were really good as well. So I think uh, it, it took itself a little bit more seriously. It took its audience a little bit more seriously also. Uh, so just watch the old Mortal Kombat. Skip this one. But it's streaming right now on HBO Max if you're a masochist. Flawless victory. I'm telling you, though, I think the cutscenes in the later games, the more recent games, were more interesting, better paced, had better storytelling than this movie did. And that's kind of sad that uh, a game actually had better... Uh, a, a game that's f- way lower budget and is just animated was, you know, by far told better stories than a, a movie that's just supposed to be about telling stories and not doesn't have to also give you good gameplay, uh, was able to do. Okay, so the best thing I watched this month, I always like to tell you what the best thing I watch a lot every month, but what's the best thing I sat down with, the best movie? Uh, And it was Mortal Kombat. No, I'm just kidding. It was from 1973. The Wicker Man, one of my all-time favorites, my must-watch Halloween movie every year. But my sister-in-law, who I love, like, she's got great taste in movies as well. And we watch a lot of horror movies together. I love showing her horror movies that she hasn't seen yet. It's one of my favorite things to do. And she had never seen The Wicker Man. So I was like, okay, we got to fix this and got my DVD copy and we watched it. And, uh, you know, this movie just never gets old to me. It's so well done. Um, the world of it is so well crafted. It feels, you know, real, like it feels like summer Isle is just a real place. And these people, this like cult, like, uh, pagan society that exists there is real, Um, And I think, you know, because of it being in Scotland and shot there and everything to Americans, it definitely feels even eerier and it feels like it could be real uh, as well. And uh, that just adds to it. And Christopher Lee is just brilliant in this movie. Uh, And the ending remains one of the great twist endings ever. Um, And it gets better every time you watch it because you know what's coming when you watch it later. And so everything makes more sense the second time through it. So, uh, cause you're watching it and you're like, why is the main character? Why is he such a stick in the mud? Why is this guy so dull? And then you get to the ending and it all makes sense. So, uh, that's what a great ending can do to you. So the wicker man from 1973, one of my absolute favorites It's streaming now on Amazon prime video. If you want to want to watch it in glorious high definition, I recommend turning on the subtitles. Because you got that deadly combination of British accents and 1970s audio production uh, coming together here in in the best way in The Wicker Man. The music is so good, too. God, I love the music in The Wicker Man. Man, corn rigs and barley rigs. Corn rigs and barley rigs and corn rigs are bonny. Creeps the hell out of me every single time. All right, some movies now streaming for you on Netflix, Amazon Prime Video, on Hulu, and on HBO Max. I always liked it. I used to, for for years, I've been giving you something funny and something serious, but I'm changing the format this for this month and, and, and beyond. I'm going to change the format. Instead of something funny and something serious, I want to give you something light and something dark. 
So I don't want to be pinned in because some dark movies can be funny and some light movies can be pretty serious. So I'm going to give you something light and something dark, depending on what you're in the mood for. On Netflix, uh, something light for you from 1979, Lupin III, The Castle of Cagliostro. This is a, a classic anime from 1979. Beautiful animation, but the reason I bring this up, this is gonna, this sounds very nerdy to you, I'm sure. I'm, I'm telling you about some 1970s anime movie. This is a very important movie because it was the first movie directed by the great Hayao Miyazaki, who went on to found Studio Ghibli and direct some of the greatest anime uh, films ever ever put to film. And I think you can see his brilliance here. Lupin the Third is just a really cool character. Anyway, I remember when I was young and I was and and I was just discovering anime I would watch it sometimes on uh, on Cartoon Network on Adult Swim at night and they would show episodes of Lupin the Third and that was one of the first ones that I really got into because it was easy to watch the character was just cool as hell he was kind of like James Bond but he was a thief um, he's the classic gentleman thief uh, and and it, this is a, a really cool movie it's got some great animation it's got some great fantasy stuff and Lupin's just hard to beat. He's awesome. So check it out. The Castle of Cagliostro. It's streaming right now on Netflix. I think you'll have fun with it. Even if maybe you're not an anime person, this could be a gateway uh, for you to get into it. Because like I said, Lupin is just a he's just a cool character. He's a kick-ass cat. Um, something dark for you on Netflix. The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. The 2011 David Fincher version. I revisited this one recently as well. Um, and really liked it more the second time around because I'm a big lover of the original, the Swedish uh, version of The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. I think it's the better of the two still, but the Fincher version is really good, and the, the production values are just second to none. The budget was huge, which is so rare for something like this, which is essentially just a crime thriller. Um, but, man, Rooney Mara just really gave it her all here in playing Lizbeth Salander, who's a, such a cool character anyway. And Daniel Craig's very good in it, as he always is. So uh, I think this is one of those that, you know, needs to be revisited. It's from 2011, The Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, streaming now on Netflix. And it is very dark, so that's something dark for you. Uh, on Prime Video, something light. From 1989, I referenced it before. Kickboxer with Jean-Claude Van Damme. Why not? Uh, you're looking for something funny to watch? Um, it's got some certainly some gory shit in it, and it's got some nasty violence in it, but it's cool, and it's got that infamous scene with Jean-Claude Van Damme dancing in the bar and beating the shit out of those guys. So if you've never seen that, check it out, uh, because it just gives you some gratuitous shots of close-ups of Van Damme's you know, butt dancing in like these high-waisted 1990s jeans in a bar. I guess they were 1980s jeans because this was 89. So check it out. Kickboxer now on Prime Video. That's a good one for a drunken night watching a movie by yourself. Also on Prime Video, something dark from 1992. Michael Mann's The Last of the Mohicans. Right before he did Heat, Michael Mann gave us this romantic as hell period piece uh, and uh, based on an American classic, The Last of the Mohicans. I think it's a beautiful movie. I think the music is just stellar. The the um, cinematography is fantastic. Daniel Day-Lewis is, you know, as good as ever and does really great work as a, as a romantic lead here, which is something that we haven't seen him do in a long time. But back then he was a real like heartthrob romantic lead kind of guy. And Last of the Mohicans is the, probably the best evidence of that 
in his long and storied career. I mean, is it my favorite Michael Mann movie? No, but it's very good, and it's got a great villain as well, played by the uh, criminally underrated Wes Study, who is just always great in anything that he's he's taken part in. Uh, let's go to Hulu, Something Light for You, from 2019. It's Olivia Wilde's Booksmart, one of the great directorial debuts, I think, that we've seen in recent years, and just a, such a funny... Such a funny movie, uh, and and so well done. Great characters, great story, um, an instant classic to me. Booksmart streaming now on Hulu. Uh, do yourself a favor and check that one out if you missed it. Um, also on Hulu, something dark. Let's go with 2010's The Social Network. I'll give you another David Fincher movie here that I really like. Uh, one of my favorite movies of the last decade, and um, you know it even made. I'm not a Jesse Eisenberg guy by any stretch of the imagination, but this made me actually enjoy Jesse Eisenberg for a couple hours and actually put up with him. I'm not even an Andrew Garfield guy. Like th- this movie like sets the record for cast members that I don't even like as actors. And yet I love this movie. It's one of my favorites. I've said many times on this show, I think the score for the social network is the the most important, the best score. Uh, probably since the year 2000 in cinema. So to to me, that is a high watermark of movie music of the last 30 years, The Social Network by Trent Reznor and Atticus Ross. And it's one of Fincher's best, and that's really saying something. So give it a watch on uh, Hulu right now. On HBO Max, a couple things for you, something light. Let's give you another Miyazaki movie. How about the legendary My Neighbor Totoro from 1988? A Studio Ghibli classic. There's a reason for it. Whether you watch it subbed, whether you watch it dubbed, it's a great movie. It's beautiful. It is. It, it really gets into childhood, the wonders of it, uh, the innocence of it, better than many children's movies are able to do. The one thing I love about this movie, no villain. There is no villain in My Neighbor Totoro, and that makes it a movie that is you know devoid of tension, so when you're watching it with kids, there's like nothing to get scared of in this movie. It's just all fun, and it tells a great story, um, and it's a beautiful movie about family, about sisters, and uh, about nature as well. So give it a watch. If you missed My Neighbor Totoro for all these years for whatever reason, even if you don't have kids, but especially if you have kids, sit down with them and check it out. It's streaming now on HBO Max. And finally, something dark on HBO Max. God, they had a lot of good choices this month, but I got to go with 1974's The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3. If I tell you it's one of my 10 favorite movies ever made, will that make you watch it? This is, I've said many times, and I am not a New Yorker. I'm a Midwesterner all the way through, lived in Ohio my entire life, but to me, The Taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3 is the most New York movie ever made. It just, to me, says... Everything about the attitude of New York, the pace of New York, about the common people of New York, it takes place under the streets in the subway. Uh, And Walter Matthau just gives the performance of a lifetime in this movie. And it's just full of memorable characters, great moments. It got a great ending, thrilling action, and again, a great score. I love the score to this movie as well. Taking a Pelham 1, 2, 3 is a perfect film. It was one of the very few movies I gave a five-star grade to back at the now-defunct OverdueReview.com. So check it out. What are you waiting on? It's one of those movies that's kind of hard to find, too. So here in glorious high definition, it's streaming on HBO Max right now. 
1974 is the taking of Pelham 123. All right, that's going to do it, my friend. What else can I give you? I've given you enough already, I guess. Um, I give you my friendship. Check me out on social media at Mr. Clint Davis. You can find me on Instagram or Twitter there, and you can also email me at theclintdavis at gmail.com anytime you want to drop me a line. I'd love to hear from you, whether it's about the show or what you're watching or even just how you're doing. I hope you're doing well. My friend, as the gates start to open back up again, as we start to go back into society, I hope you are feeling well and not feeling too overwhelmed with the thought of going out. Remember, you can still say no, and I urge you to do that whenever you want to. Uh, And Andy, always good to talk to you, my friend. Hopefully I get to see you soon. You can also find uh, Andy on uh, on social media at Andy Sedlak on Instagram there, and you can write to him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com. Talk to you in a month, my friend. Until then, stream on. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.